Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here, Here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. Hello, this is Brexit Memes, The Guardian's weekly dispatch from Brexit land. In this episode, we're going to be looking at a sector that was one of the most vehemently anti-Brexit of all in the run-up to last year's referendum. In fact, in one survey of around 3,000 different firms, almost 9 in 10 opposed Brexit. Britain's booming, youthful tech sector with its open international mindset was worried mainly that leaving the EU would make it harder for British companies to reach customers in EU countries. It was worried, too, that it would be harder to find and employ the necessary talent from overseas, harder to attract investment from abroad, including from the European Investment Bank and the European Investment Fund, and harder to convince international companies to operate in the UK at any great scale. Since then, well, things haven't entirely gone pear-shaped, though, of course, we should remember Brexit hasn't actually happened yet. Prime Minister Theresa May noted earlier this month, for example, that venture capital firms had invested £2.4 billion in the UK tech sector since the referendum, twice the amount they ploughed into Germany and three times the amount in France. But people are undeniably worried. Asked how optimistic they felt about the future of European tech, 27% of UK tech firm founders at a major conference last month said they felt less optimistic than they did last year, compared to just 6% of the rest of Europe. And fully 71% in the UK and Ireland said that the triggering of Article 50 in March had had a major impact on their companies in terms of both hiring and of fundraising. Well, 
With me to discuss all this in a bit more detail are The Guardian's technology reporter Alex Hearn, Eileen Burbage of venture capitalists Passion Capital and Chair of Tech City, and Giles Derrington, who's Head of Brexit Policy at Tech UK, which represents around 950 mainly small and mid-sized businesses employing around 700,000 people. That's about half of all the tech jobs in the country. Welcome, all of you. Thank you for being with us today. Um, let's start with the basics, shall we? For those of us who are not experts in the sector, Giles, could I ask you just to give us a quick rundown, a kind of a global picture of tech in the UK? We've all heard about Silicon Roundabout. I guess that's not the extent of it. What what areas are we in, is Britain involved in? What areas is it strong in? Why has it been doing so well? How important is it in the overall picture of, of the British economy? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, you know, when we talk about tech, we're not just talking about the tech sector because tech increasingly underpins almost everything the economy does. So everything from the financial services sector, which relies massively on tech, through to agriculture, which is increasingly digitising. So actually, its importance to the whole economy is massive because it underpins, it is the plumbing for everything. What we are very good at, though, is the kind of the specialist technologies particularly kind of the startup and scale up, the interesting kind of new ideas you saw in the government's industrial strategy released last week. Massive investment into AI, machine learning, those kind of things, because they know that those are places we can really have some impact. I think the other thing to say is it's not just London. We are increasingly becoming good across the country. We have, we have clusters doing specialist work, for example, in Leeds doing med tech, where the the prominence of the NHS connecting to a tech sector means there's whole new levels of innovation coming out of there. Same going on in Newcastle and Manchester and Cardiff and Bristol. So it is something which is increasingly something that the economy is reliant on, increasingly something that all businesses rely on, and therefore something which is really important to protect during the Brexit negotiations. Mm. And Alex, I mean, how, how, how reliant on European engagement and European involvement uh, do you think that the, the tech sector has been? So the big, one of the big roles that Europe plays in the UK tech sector is as a sort of really important filter for companies moving to the next stage. One of the difficulties that you have in moving from a, a startup to a, a scale up and then a, a large enterprise mm. is sort of proving to investors and clients and the rest of the market that you have this potential. In that way, in America, there's not really a huge hurdle. You can grow to an industry of 320 million possible customers without really changing much, without showing that you have what it takes to evolve your business. In the UK, Europe is the next sector. And that means that companies don't have to get very big before they have to deal with slightly different regulations. They have to deal with multiple languages. They have to deal with a wide array of time zones. Like These are all things that mean that by the time a UK startup has evolved to a regional scale mm. startup, They've it's involved in Europe. Yeah, and yeah. more than that, they've already shown they have what it takes to become worldwide. Whereas in America, you can become a huge company. I'm thinking of something like, say, Lyft, which is the second biggest uh, car share company mm. in America. It's Uber's main rival. And they only just opened their first international city mm. this year in Canada, mm. which is another yeah. English-speaking, yeah. extremely similar regulations. Whether or not Lyft has the uh, institutional nous to run in a country where none of its CEOs speak the language is still unknown. Whereas in Britain, you don't reach that scale without showing that you have what it takes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I mean, Europe is also important, isn't it, in terms of, uh, of, of what it, it can offer to the tech 
sector in the UK. I know that you've said, Alex, you've talked before about, you know, how uh, important Europe has been for, you know, the, 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 the supply of kind of top talent mm-hmm. uh, into the UK tech sector. Um, and that, you know, that might be potentially one of the biggest challenges for tech companies after Brexit. Now, there, you know, uh, there are some some tech companies, particularly in London, I understand up, up to sort of 40, 45% of the staff are, are foreign. And most of those are EU nationals simply because uh, of the very kind of tough immigration restrictions on other on others. Um, Eileen, is, is that, do you see that as one of perhaps the single biggest obstacle from from Brexit, the, 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 the threat that it may be to, to the sort of hiring and attracting of, uh, of top talent into the UK? Yeah, in a word, except that we're doing a podcast, I would say yes. <laughs> um, to expand upon that a little bit more, I mean, I, I do think that was the biggest single risk was that we would uh, make it more difficult for British firms to employ highly skilled people into the sector, especially those EU nationals who would have the right to have worked, you know, pre-Brexit. Mm-hmm. The other consequence, which is not directly related, is the fact that given the way the vote has gone, and I guess the the sort of um, climate and the, the kind of the atmosphere that's sort of charged uh, Britain or is maybe perceived by other countries since the vote, I also worry that it looks less welcoming, uh, even for people outside of the European Union and EU nationals who weren't already uh, given access to work, who might then just be put off applying to work and trying to go through the visa process. So both of those consequences are what we were most concerned about uh, when we looked at all of the companies we supported at Tech City and also from a passion point of view in the companies that we've invested in. Mm. Giles, I mean, that's a, it's a very good point, isn't it? That, you know, there is a difference between being allowed to work somewhere and feeling welcome to come and work somewhere. And mm-hmm. I guess there must be a fair few of the EU nationals who are employed in the, in the tech sector in Britain who, you know, who may have come over uh, from France or Spain or, or, or Germany or wherever, got a, got, you know, worked part-time in a bar before they found their, you know, the, 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 the job that, that, that really suited them. And surely the risk is going to be that those kind of people simply won't come anymore. And I think that's absolutely true. And it's why tone is so important in this debate. Actually, one of the real challenges with the whole right to remain kind of for EU citizens question is not just about the EU citizens already here working in the tech industry, providing tremendous value, but also what it says to everyone else. It's interesting that uh, there's a report from a company called Hired.com, which looked at American American tech workers and where their favourite countries to possibly go and work abroad are. UK has been number one for every year they've done it. We've now fallen to sixth hmm. because it's just a perception of, or oh, maybe, maybe the the uh, country's closing it off, not just for immigration purposes, but tech's a global mindset business. It under, it doesn't really necessarily recognise borders all that well. So actually, they want to be in places where that that attitude pervades through the whole of society. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And it's why when we're looking at you know, future immigration rules, things like visaless travel are going to be so important because it gives a direction for for kind of the type of workers we get. Mm. And that's really important for one other reason, which is the ecosystem that it creates. One of the great things about tech in the UK is that you have lots of small businesses, you know, micro one person kind of with a good idea. And often those be plucked off by one of the bigger businesses to kind of be developed into something which helps their product. And then the people who are working in the bigger businesses go and spin off their own idea. And actually that kind of ecosystem, if parts of that move, if the small bits of that move, then it's very easy for the rest of it to move. And then suddenly you're really hitting the economy. Mm. Alex? The other big thing about uh, immigration in tech and 
the need for world the need for world class talent to come to Britain to work in Britain's tech sector is this is not solely a worry sparked by Brexit. Uh, two years ago, actually, with Eileen, I was at a, a, a dinner organised by UK startup Transferwise with I think ten or twelve. Uh, CEOs and C-level executives all around the table talking about their hopes and fears for the UK tech sector. And as one, they spoke about their fear that immigration was clamping down on the potential for the sector. This was when Brexit seemed like a a nightmare, which was unlikely to happen. (laughs) You know, people brought it up as like, I mean, this would make it much worse, but obviously it's It's not not going to happen. (laughs) And even so, they were extremely concerned about the direction of travel or migration. They were extremely concerned that their companies would have to open up satellite arms on mainland Europe or in America, not really because, you know, anything to do with Brexit, but just because they couldn't bring the people they needed into Britain. At that time, while we were still in the EU, TransferWise had one of its strongest assets was its large engineering office in Estonia, where Estonia has a huge pool of digital talent. Then uh, Estonians could legally move to the UK, but many of them didn't want to. And so TransferWise had this engineering hub in Tallinn where it, it still has it. Now the engineering hub is going to become not just a place for Estonians who don't want to move, but a place for, frankly, anyone in Europe who wants to work for one of Britain's biggest fintech companies to go to. They're not going to be coming to London anymore. It's just worth also saying that for tech, the biggest input is people and skills and ideas. You know, There are other industries where it's raw materials. If we don't put in the input, then we won't get the output. And actually, we're, you know, the government's budget plans all rely on the growth of the tech sector being the fastest growing industry still and all those kind of things. So actually there's a real kind of practical risk of you're taking away the raw goods and that presents challenges later on down the line. Yeah, Eileen, are you confident that what we know of kind of the visa schemes and what have you that the government is proposing, there were some plans leaked to the, to the Guardian a couple of months ago, will will that suffice for, for, for the tech sector? I don't think I'm comfortable saying I'm entirely confident with anything that might be coming uh, on this topic. But I will say, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know about the specific plans that were mentioned a couple of months ago, but as maybe one data point, just two weeks ago, for example, the government did announce uh, doubling the number of exceptional talent visas that would be offered to those in the digital sector or people applying for roles that would qualify as digital roles. Um, that was quite monumental in terms of a a symbolic gesture, I think, because as Alex was pointing out, for years, this has been something that the tech sector asked for, even without Brexit. To do it now uh, is definitely a sort of a point of demonstration for the tech sector, specifically for digital jobs. You know, yes, the number is relatively small. We're still talking 2000, but it is double the number that we had before. It also means that it's not restricted to certain endorsing bodies. Um, And I think that's a pretty good sign, considering that's the first pro-immigration uh, position that uh, Theresa May's ever taken, whether she was Home Office uh, <laughs> Minister or Prime Minister. So again, a nice uh, gesture towards the, the digital sector, whether or not we'll continue to see support or recognition that skills are so important for, you know, as Giles points out, the growth of the economy overall, I don't know. Another issue here surely is the UK education system presumably one of the reasons that so many EU employees are working in the tech sector in in the UK is that the the British education system isn't supplying sufficiently qualified people in the right kind of numbers. Are there plans afoot to sort of uh, narrow the gap between what uh, what universities are producing and what what the sector needs? 
I mean, I think there's there is to a certain extent, but you know, the rapid growth is something which outpaces the growth that we can possibly have. The government's actually doing some. Say quite well, some really good things uh, <laughs> in, in this area. You look at the budget. Whisper you know, that in this room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, know, you look at things like the uh, the computer program, the computer curriculum. Um, they've just announced mm. in the budget money to train new teachers to help support that work. Those things are really good. But actually, and you know, we did some kind of linear projections, and you're talking, you know growth over the next 30 years of millions of people. And that's not including other sectors becoming more digitised. Mm. So actually, you're going to need to bring in skills. Mm. The other thing to say is also. For the people at the very cutting edge, the specialist skills are worldwide shortages. You know, there may be a hundred people with a particular programming language. And what you, we was, I was speaking to a member a few months ago who was saying that a uh, member of Tech UK a few months ago that they'd been looking for six months for a particular type of programmer. They'd finally found one in South Korea. They were bringing them over. They were going to base them in the UK, and they were going to train an entire sector of their business around that person. That's new jobs into the economy for English people, for British people, for you know, for people from across the world. That's the kind of thing which you can't just suddenly magic out of thin air. So we need to be able to bring in those people if we want to develop the whole sector. Mm. Alex, are you, are you confident that, 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 that Britain can come up with a sort of a flexible enough immigration system that would meet the, the needs of the sector, given what we know, as Eileen was saying, about the, you know, the, the Theresa May's sort of history on this and the, the, the whole attempt that that we've seen, uh, and re- this paper has reported on en- endless times over the last few months, of what you can only really call a sort of a hostile environment mm. to, to immigration. I mean, to a certain extent, the answer is no. Um, but I don't actually mean that to sound uh, as aggressive as it might. I think one of the things to bear in mind here is that tech is um, is greedy. Uh, as Giles was saying, tech is, is an industry where the inputs are people. Uh, tech companies, especially the the largest in the world, the the Apples and the Googles, uh, demand the best. They they are the sort of, it is an industry which will ship someone, as Giles said, ship one person over, spend seven-figure salaries. You know, the first time I heard the phrase seven-figure salary was last year, describing uh, how Google hires machine learning experts. Against that background, there is you know, short of open borders or handing control of the visa system to Google, there is no way that that they will ever be fully satisfied. You know, a, a Google, a DeepMind, wants to be able to hire literally anyone in the world whenever they say. Any limit on that is a, a genuine limit that hits them at the bottom line. Yeah, this is not something where the attitude to talent is that it's not it's not substitutable. It's not you. T- you go to DeepMind and you say, "I'm sorry, you cannot hire this world class expert from a Taiwanese university. You'll have to hire a UK graduate instead." That they don't see that as a substitution, and to a certain extent, they may be correct. You know, if you're talking about hiring someone with 15 years' experience in a field which has existed for 15 years, you know, the we are talking about hiring the pe- the person who invented the technique. That's the level we have here. You can bring in one person on an exceptional talent visa, but there's not enough exceptional talent visas to... And and it's questionable as to whether there should be and to whether they should be allocated to such a small pool of companies that you could staff an entire company with exclusively this visa. Maybe, maybe, you know, tech is still, although losing, uh, it's still popular. And it is, if there is one industry which could convince the government to just introduce a whole new class of visa and hand total control. It would, it, be tech. it would be tech. It would be tech. But I don't think it would, and I'm not entirely sure it should. 
Okay, one potential hurdle there. Um, yeah, um, Eileen, um, can we... Uh, your sort of special subject, as it were, I suppose, finance and, and, and funding. Um, what kind of impact do you think Brexit is going to have on, on startups and scale-ups ability to attract money? Is it is it already having a, a, an effect? I mean, those numbers that we saw from last year since the referendum seem to suggest things are fairly healthy. How do you see it? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think like many things relating to Brexit, a lot of the uh, challenge will be just the distraction that it's there and the question. And so especially for foreign investors, for example, while, you know, maybe the fundamentals haven't changed yet about quality of the company's caliber of the founders or, you know, uh, how compelling a proposition is and whether or not to invest, just the fact that you might have to pause and think, oh, but what does this mean now with Brexit or what might happen to their access to this market or when they grow or how they, you know, hire is is an impedance. And as Alex said, the sector is very greedy and you don't want any of these impedances. Um, so that alone is a bit of a, a distraction. Even having a podcast series, for example, about it means it's it's a series that could have been maybe about payment companies or, you know, yeah. something else. Um, but, you know, in truth, as as the numbers say, the, the funding hasn't yet declined. Brexit hasn't happened. I think what will happen is potentially a longer term uh, ramification, which is, you know, there were statistics that uh, measured the European Investment Fund contribution, for example, to UK domestic venture capital funds being upwards of maybe 40%. Um, if that's the case in terms of the very top of the funnel and who funds venture capital funds, which are the ones that fund the tech startups, mm. you do have a sort of a trickle-down effect. Now, the Chancellor um, has said that you know he has the British Business Bank at the ready to try and fill any gaps should they not be able to secure an agreement with the EIB in order to continue funding UK venture capital firms. But again, as with anything and everything we've seen in the process for the last year, the devil's in the details. And it's really hard to get a really clear sense for, you know, when that might happen or how. Giles. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think that one of the things we've looked at with the European Investment Fund is if you set up a national version, then it's still going to be competing with the European Investment Fund across the, as it were, across the pond, mm. kind of doing kind of big investment funneling VC funds into the EU market rather than necessarily the UK. And it will take some time for a national fund to develop the reputation, the expertise, all those kind of things to be able to really challenge them. And even then, it might not. So I think there's some challenges there. Eileen? I mean, I do think, again, in terms of gestures, and uh, it depends mm -hmm. how much you want to take from it. Another thing, you know, that was announced in the budget was uh, increased funding for the British Business Bank, even in advance of anticipating something uh, needing to be done. A new fund, two and a half billion pounds, uh, new commitments to the Enterprise Capital Fund scheme, which Passion Capital is a beneficiary of. And so, again, there is this readiness. There's a preparedness. Will it actually, you know, solve all of the problems? Probably not. And we, we have this discourse anyway, which we sh it's a shame that we had to have. But um, they are taking steps to try and indicate that they're aware, the government's aware that these will be challenges. OK, so it's kind of wait and see. Um, let's let's move on to, I mean, another area of concern, um, I, as I understand it, for, for the sector, which is this whole um, issue of, of, of regulations, of, of data sharing, data protection. Um, it's all... The, we're talking about a sector that is perhaps almost uniquely highly regulated. We've got EU regulations on data protection are kind of coming down the line, whether we like it or not. Alex, what, what do you see as the main issues in this in this area for, for UK tech mm. after Brexit? So the one which is the obvious one to start with is fintech. 
um, financial technology companies are one of the areas that the UK punches above its weight. The uh, textbook explanation is that uh, Britain's economy has one cluster. London is the heart of the UK economy in a way that doesn't exist in the US. In the US, you have multiple capitals for different industries. And importantly, tech is on the West Coast and finance is on the East. That's not true in Britain. In Britain, uh, for certain values of the economy, everything is in London. And this is one of the one of the things about tech is that things which are problems viewed from other aspects, things which are problems viewed through other aspects are a benefit for tech. Tech likes importing uh, tons of migrants rather than hiring them domestically. Tech likes the over-concentration of the economy in London. They're not popular, and it's one of the reasons why tech, I think, is fighting this uh, rearguard action. Mm -hmm. But it matters. So fintech is the broad name for almost any uh, part of the technology sector which deals with banks, banking, money, and finance. A lot of it is... uh, quite dull business-to-business companies, but nonetheless, they are extremely successful because we have, you know, we have a, a technology sector which can sit in Canary Wharf and work with, you know, stare across a town next door and work with a company based there. But fintech is extremely regulated. It's already causing problems. Some of these companies are scaling up to the point where they're having to decide, for instance, do they legally become a bank which is tricky and perhaps a distraction if all you really want to do is offer a chatbot-based savings account. Uh, Or do they not become a bank, which means they are then, for the rest of their lifespan, beholden to whichever old legacy bank decides to provide them a white-label bank account for their providers. Those things are only going to get more difficult. But so far, that area, I, I believe, the problems come when you try and go international, which is down the line for a lot of these companies. You know, you have to be, unless you're offering something like cross-border payments, quite a large fintech company to start offering services in another country. Uh, so I think in that sector, there's problems, but... Not, not yet not, insurmountable. N- not yet insurmountable, and the sort of things which other companies, other countries do surmount. It's important to remember here that this is actually one of the other ways that we uh, we beat America, is that America is not, for fintech, one market. America is 50, 51, really. Uh, so, you know, if you can send your business to the whole of the UK under one financial regulatory environment, you've already beaten any American startup. They have to learn a new regulatory environment for every state they're in. With that, even a UK out of Europe doesn't actually look that bad comparatively. Yeah. Well, so why are we hearing all these reports about fintech companies being lured by Amsterdam and Berlin? And I mean, the short version is, nonetheless, if you can <laughs> sell to the entire European market <laughs> you with will one regulatory to. structure, yeah, yeah. If, if you have to choose between the market of 70 million people uh, being based in London and the market of 400 million people being based in Amsterdam, it's it's not that hard to see why you might take Amsterdam. Mm. Charles, other kinds of regulation and other areas. I mean, that one of the issues, as in as in many sectors, with with leaving the EU, clearly, depending on the kind of final deal, if any, that the government manages to negotiate, is that Britain will inevitably become a uh, you know a, a, a rule taker rather than a rule a rule maker. Is that seen as a as a big issue? Yeah, I think there's kind of two things here. So actually, for many of kind of the tech 
companies we work with, the single big concern about Brexit right now, in addition to immigration, is this question about data flows and data regulation. So this is the idea that personal data moves across borders. Even if you never leave the United Kingdom, your data will have moved across back and forth thousands of times. That's really important for banking, for you know, you're logging onto Facebook, anything where you're kind of jumping into kind of a, an online internet world. At the moment... Data moves between the EU and the UK very, very swiftly, Seamlessly. and then also onwards to America. In fact, about about 11.5% of the world's flows of personal data flow through the United Kingdom. About 75% of that is with Europe. Now, when we leave the EU, we will need some form of legal mechanism to allow us to have that data, that free flow of data back and forth. That's really challenging, and not in a lot of issues for regulation, the kind of the conversation is oh, very much, you know, we will have the same regulation as when we the day after we left. So will we all right? The particular challenge with data is that at the moment, national security issues aren't looked at by the EU. When the commission, EU Commission looks at things, they aren't allowed to look at national security. Hmm. When we're a third country applying for what's called an adequacy agreement, i.e., that our that we treat personal data adequately compared to the uh, compared to the EU. They will also look at national security, and that brings up a whole host of potential challenges around investigative powers, the bulk collection of data, and a lot of the kind of national security measures we have. There, it's possible to manage through this through these things, but actually, it's really important for government to grasp the nettle and understand how complicated that is. They're getting there, but it's going to take some time. It's going to be quite a long, drawn-out process. Hi, Lena. The uh is the government grasping the nettle on <laughs> on data and regulations? All these questions, I refuse to say yes or no. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think that the government is aware of mm. how, how yeah. complicated this could be mm. and how much it has uh, to sort out. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, another, and, and not to uh, be too much of a broken record, but to go back and uh, to tie this, actually, it doesn't, it might not seem immediate, obviously, but to tie it back to an earlier conversation we were having, for instance, when Alex was talking about fintech and the regulatory um, environment or impact of, of financial services, for example. One, again, a ramification of what happens with uh, fintech is even if startups in financial services aren't going to be directly affected by regulatory changes, because perhaps, as is the case with most of them, they don't actually need um, regulatory approval in order to conduct their businesses. The impact on the larger companies that do, so the existing financial services institutions, the banks, mm. um, those that might be uh, convinced to move because they want to be able to passport their services mm. to their customers, by virtue of their moving means actually, again, the talent base, the people that the startup fintech companies might be hiring from or looking to um, leverage for advisory services, for support, and for part of their ecosystem that supports their company growth, that moves away. So even if it's not the license itself or the regulatory uh, requirements specifically that might impact the startup companies or the scale-up companies within uh, the digital sector, if it's only the kind of, in quotes, only affecting the larger institutions, that actually has a massive effect on mm. the smaller companies as well. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yes, John. There's one other thing which I think is worth bearing in mind about the regulatory piece, actually. It's potentially quite interesting when we get to the trade negotiations part of this, should we get there uh, <laughs> after the council meeting uh, ne next week, um, which is tech is a really innovative sector. We create a lot of new products, new ideas. Actually, one of the big barriers for trade deals in the past has been how do you ensure that you don't have discrimination against future products, things which have never been invented mm. before. And actually... 
you know, speaking to colleagues in America about some of their negotiations when they were doing TTIP with, with the EU or ca- Canada mm. negotiating with the EU, they found that that's a really difficult thing to get over the, over the line with the EU because obviously they don't want to give up the power to regulate on things which they've not, not thought yet. of yet. Yeah. Yeah. So actually for, for a lot of tech companies, that ability to design a product, create it in the UK and then sell it to Europe, it's going to be dependent on how well that conversation goes at the, at the trade level when we get there. And are companies in your experience already starting to fret about about that? I think there is, I mean, fundamentally uncertainty. You know, businesses don't like uncertainty, right? And I think the levels of um, uncertainty at the moment are particularly heightened. Uh, we will see when we get to that second phase just how how big the gulf is between what the UK government thinks is going to be negotiated between hopefully January mm. and October of uh, next year and what the EU thinks it's going to be prepared to negotiate. That that how big that chasm is, I suspect, will give uh, give companies cause for concern, cause for thinking about, actually, do we need to start mm. putting some investment elsewhere, even if only as a, we might need this as a safeguard. Yeah. yeah, Alex, a, a lot of anxious founders out there? Well, so actually, I was going to go back to this rule takers, rule makers point, because... That's a, it's, a, it's an apt phrase for talking about the European Union, but it's actually also an apt phrase for talking about uh, the four or five largest tech companies in the world. Right now, we are part of one of two markets, which is effectively a rule maker when it comes to Apple, Google, Facebook and Amazon. Uh, if we leave the EU, we lose the ability to realistically make and enforce rules. Hmm. Right now, if the EU says to Google, you have to spit your shopping product off from your search product or lose access to the european market google ultimately does Does. it is not clear to me that the uk market is large enough that we would actually have that same power the tech sector that these these huge companies Mm. are quite comfortable with pulling relatively sizable products from large markets if they can't see a way around it a good example of that might be for instance whatsapp which uh is facebook's uh end-to-end encrypted messaging service, which Facebook makes actually to access developed markets which can't use the data-heavy Facebook Messenger product, and which is kind of as an accident of history extremely popular in Britain. Theresa May is trying to push WhatsApp, or uh, the UK government is trying to push WhatsApp (laughs) to uh, remove the end-to-end encryption or at Mm. least provide the uh, security services with a backdoor into it. That's not something to do with the EU, but it is somewhere where if push comes to shove, I'm not convinced that Facebook wouldn't just go, you know what, fine, everyone use Messenger in the UK. We pull WhatsApp. We're not bothered. Yeah. We're not bothered. And yeah. I don't think that would be a win. Yeah. Eileen? Yeah, I was just going to then maybe pick up on the question about whether or not there are a lot of anxious founders and maybe mm. just to deviate a bit and be a little bit more optimistic. <laughs> I do think almost by definition, you know, entrepreneurs and founders within the tech sector, you know, they, they, they're kind of there. They're doing what they're doing because they like solving problems, sort of masochists that they are. Um, and even if they weren't in favor necessarily of Brexit and having the distraction that it provides, there's a lot of entrepreneurs now coming to the, for, you know, for um, that want to solve some of the problems that Brexit is producing, whether it's, you know, trying to normalize normalize regulatory requirements, trying to normalize compliance, maybe trying to provide access to markets and distribution channels a little bit more effectively. And I think what you're seeing is what we've always uh, seen as typical of the digital sector or even people who work in the digital economy, which is a resilience um, and a sort of a willingness to get on with it, move on, move forward, try to build bigger, better things. That, that's absolutely right, and you know I think fundamentally the UK will still be a big tech market. We, you know, even as consumers, we like tech products. We will use them, and so it makes sense to to be here. The challenge is kind of 
are we going to be the world leader or kind of second to America or are we going to be a world leader? And I think that's the challenge. And I think, you know, there is some positivity out there. Still. And a lot will depend on, on how the government plays it or is able to play it, I suppose. And, and, you know, we've, we've seen in, in recent days news about, you know, big investments by, you know, by the likes of, of Facebook here, um, right opposite these offices fairly shortly Google's new headquarters is going to be going up. I mean, there does seem to be an an air of confidence in the future, Alex. Mm. I mean, almost by definition, tech is weird. (laughs) Once once it stops being weird and normal, it's not cutting edge, it's conventional. And when it's conventional, it's not really Mm. tech. It's telecoms or it's industry. You know, things age out of tech when they stop pushing the boundaries. So it is hard to to speak in general terms about this. And I think it is an industry which viewed as a whole will be able to adapt more than most others. The question is really what form that adaptation takes. Mm. And some of that adaptation might be the extremely mobile younger companies leaving. Some Up, of it upping might be, sticks and yeah, going. Yeah. Some of it also, you know, especially uh, with our branded guardian hats on <laughs> might be adaptation that we don't particularly like companies coming in throwing their weight around as one of the you know 10 largest companies in the world and pushing for the uk to use its new ability to regulate internally to create rules which are extremely lax on personal privacy extremely lax on what mining a data what data mining a company can do on uh, on your personal data you know those will be for the tech industry as a whole, maybe a success of Brexit, but perhaps not a success we'd like for to see. For us, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Giles? I think it's just worth saying that you know, actually some of the bigger members of you know, people in our membership, actually, they want the UK to be part of the European regulatory system. They want data protection, those kind of things, not least because it builds trust, but also because a lot of the ones which are based here are to serve their whole European market. They want the ability for, if a data centre in Nice goes down, for mm. their engineer in the UK to be able to fly out there immediately. And actually that, the potential for everything from immigration to regulation to kind of close off the UK means actually for some of the bigger companies, it then becomes... You're serving the UK market from here, but actually maybe you look to serve the rest of your European market from somewhere else. And that detracts from the whole ecosystem, which is, as we've been discussing, mm. the way that innovation sparks off each other and creates the you know, the next unicorn company of a billion, billion dollars. So the devil will, as Eileen said, be in the detail. But I mean, I think nonetheless, that's probably one of the most optimistic, one of the more optimistic assessments we've heard of from uh, from sort of industry experts in in, in this series. That's it, uh, I'm afraid, for this week. Thank you very much uh, to Alex, to Eileen, uh, to Giles for joining me today. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word brexit podcast at theguardian.com till next week i'm john henley the producer was rowan slaney this was brexit memes and thank you very much for listening for more great podcasts from the guardian just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.